Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 27th of August with me, Ian Welsh. A few days ago, I spoke with Jodie Roussel, Senior Public Affairs Manager for Packaging and Sustainability at Nestle. We talked about challenges for business around developing lower impact packaging and some of the unintended consequences that can occur simply by ditching plastic. Also this week is some news about Innovation Forum's next conference, when we'll be debating how business can tackle greenhouse gas emissions and supply chains. That's all to come. First, some sustainable business news. Big US food companies have been accused of failing to address their Scope 3 supply chain emissions. Given the complexity of agriculture supply chains in particular, Scope 3 emissions are higher for many food sector businesses than the direct Scope 1 and the power-related Scope 2 emissions. Some estimates put Scope 3 emissions at 80% of total emissions for the average North American food company. This new analysis comes from Boston-based non-profit coalition Ceres and includes the 50 largest North American food companies and shows that only 19 disclose their supply chain emissions from three key sources agriculture, paid-for goods and services and land use change. Ceres also investigated if the companies had science-based targets aligned with the Paris Accord's 1.5 Celsius trajectory and found that just 15 of the 50 had these. The benchmark is designed to provide information for investors to inform them of how the food sector companies are performing before making investment decisions, and will be updated again in a few months' time, Ceres says, to demonstrate which companies have made progress. Certainly, the demands on companies for greater transparency in climate-related matters are increasing. The Swiss government is the latest to announce mandatory climate reporting by large companies. The Swiss Federal Council has set parameters for the reporting and mandated the Federal Department of Finance to have draft proposals ready for consultation by mid-2022. Public companies, banks and insurance companies with more than 500 employees, more than 20 million Swiss francs in total assets, or 40 million francs in turnover will be obliged to report on climate issues. 40 million Swiss francs is around 37 million euros. The new Swiss rules will be designed to implement the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures for companies based in Switzerland. The city of Glasgow in Scotland is of course set to host the UN COP26 climate conference from the 31st of October to 12th of November and it appears that the UK authorities remain bullish that a full in-person event will be held despite the inevitable uncertainties from continued high COVID-19 infection levels. In preparation for the event, Glasgow City Council has announced that any companies that are contributing to climate change will be denied access to any city-owned venues or community spaces during the conference. To be eligible to book such space, large companies will be required to have set science-based targets for emissions reduction, be in the process of establishing them, or have signed up to the UN's Race to Net Zero campaign. Smaller companies will need to have signed up to the UN campaign to be welcome at City of Glasgow venues. The recent IPCC report highlighted some of the stresses on global water resources in a changing climate, and a new tool from CDP has been developed to highlight impacts from different business sectors and point out the most polluting and water-intensive industries. WaterWatch, CDP's Water Impact Index, measures the potential impact on water quality and quantity of over 200 industrial activities. The tool is designed to be used by financial institutions and investors to assess the impacts of their portfolios on water resources and security. Companies themselves can use the tool to highlight water-related risks in their operations and supply chains. Perhaps not surprisingly, among the sectors found to have the highest risks are mining, oil and gas extraction, livestock farming, apparel and textile manufacturer and cotton farming. Finally, an interesting partnership has been established in the UK by household goods retailer John Lewis and its sister food business Waitrose. Wool from sheep destined for the cooler cabinets of Waitrose, being reared by farmers in Wales and the southwest of England, has been used to fill mattresses being sold in John Lewis stores. 
Sheep farmers have been struggling to find markets for wool, especially during the COVID pandemic when exports to China, a key market, have been paused. Some wool was being buried or burned. Prices offered for the product were not even covering the costs of shearing the sheep. Wool-filled duvets and pillows have established a toehold in the luxury market for some time. The Innovation Forum team is working on our autumn conference programme. We'll be focusing on the future of plastics with Unilever, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Mars and many others over three days from the 11th to the 13th of October. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities conference returns on the 30th of November to 2nd of December with the likes of Tesco, Dole Food, Mujin Mass and the RSPO. Coming up first, however, in a few weeks' time, from the 27th to 29th of September, is our next Future of Climate Action event, where we'll be talking about how business can tackle GHGs in supply chains. And earlier this week, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari, who is coordinating the conference. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. How is the conference, which is on the 27th to 29th of September, how is the conference coming together? Yeah, it's, it's looking really great. The agenda is focused entirely on supply chain decarbonization, and we have a fantastic lineup of speakers. So they'll be sharing their expertise, insights, and practical guidance and solutions. Any new panelists or sessions that have been announced recently? Yeah, we have a couple of new sessions, and we've also recently confirmed a number of new speakers. For example, we'll have Richard Ellis of Walgreens Boots Alliance and Paloma Lopez of Future Fit Foods. They'll be discussing how business can best support SME suppliers to ensure a just transition. And then we'll also have Jamie Mulligan. He's a senior scientist at Amazon, and he'll be speaking on the topic of offsets and how the market there is evolving. Interesting topics coming up there for sure. So what are you looking forward to in particular at the conference? Well, so all of the sessions cover really the key issues in tackling scope three emissions. So from setting science-based targets to engaging and supporting suppliers, reporting, communicating progress with stakeholders, and then the actual solutions for reducing emissions. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of our speakers across these topics. And I think most importantly, really hearing the practical steps and the best practice that business can act upon now. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a hot topic, isn't it? No pun intended. The number of businesses that have declared their net zero targets at stretching timelines, and they're not going to get there unless they really engage on decarbonizing their supply chain. I mean, scope three emissions was something that people weren't thinking about until now. So it's really exciting to see all these developments and all the best practice examples that are emerging. How can delegates get involved, Hannah? So now prior to the conference, we'll soon be sharing login details so attendees can access the conference platform. There you'll be able to start directly messaging and setting up one-to-one meetings with the other attendees. And then you can also start building out your personal agenda. You'll be able to add all the sessions you're interested in and then export that to your own calendar. And then during the conference, we'll be running a variety of sessions from plenaries to more focused working groups where you can actually ask your questions live on camera. And then we'll, of course, have ample networking opportunities during the conference days. And then you'll be able to continue setting up your meetings via the platform for two weeks after the conference as well. So the conference is coming up on the 27th to 29th of September. And if you book by close on the 3rd of September, you can save $200. Thanks a lot, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Recently, I spoke with Jodie Roussel, Senior Public Affairs Manager for Packaging and Sustainability at Nestle. We talked about some of the changes the company has made in its approach to lessening the impact of its packaging, particularly plastic packaging, and how consumer brand relationships are evolving as business gets to grip with the plastic waste challenge. 
we're going to talk about packaging and plastic packaging in particular. So what are the main changes that Nestle has made to its packaging strategy in the past few years? So in the past few years, we've been looking at how do we reform our packaging strategy to maximize sustainability. We've been doing this in five different ways or five pillars, you may see it as. The first one is we're looking at reducing unnecessary packaging or eliminating packaging when possible. This may be reducing headspace or reducing plastic overwraps that were previously around multiple products. Another way we're looking at it, an area we're piloting extensively in is reusable and refillable packaging systems. Our third area of innovation is around materials, innovating around materials to increase recyclability and also looking at shifting materials away from plastic, for example, to paper, to glass, to metal, or to mono material plastics, which are more easily recyclable. We're also looking at recycling and waste management infrastructure and the systems around collection, sorting, and recycling of waste to maximize how our participation can enable those systems to function healthily. And lastly, we're looking at mindsets. How can we rethink behaviors inside of Nestle? How can we rethink mindsets and business models with our retail partners and also for consumers? How can we rethink how consumers choose to consume and then to manage their packaging waste? Yes, it's obviously it's a very different experience for consumers if they're going to be using different types of packaging. What they get used to will change. What are the barriers then to reusing packaging, particularly plastic packaging? If I frame it in terms of both reuse and refill, because reuse could be reusing the same packaging again. You may recall maybe you had milk that was sold in a reusable bottle when you were younger, or maybe you visited Germany where you've had water in a reusable bottle or beer in a reusable bottle with those tracks where you can see the bottle was rolled in a washing center, then relabeled and refilled. That's a great example of industrial reuse where there's a pool of packaging currently in function. The other side is refill, where either you're taking packaging that's provided by the store, which you may buy or is given to you, or consumers could be taking their own packaging from home and then refilling it at a store. So there are a couple of different models in play. Some of the major drivers behind that, now why is refill attractive to consumers around cost reduction? because there's no cost of packaging, personalization, the environmental consciousness of not purchasing a product that has a package that would be recycled in the end, and lastly, control over the amount of food you're buying. Now, some of the barriers that we face in rolling out these models are, well, number one, it's a change to existing shopping habits. For some consumers, there may be inconvenience associated with bringing your own containers. Some people, let's say, are have organized containers ready to go in a shopping bag. But for those of us who may be coming directly from work, that may be a challenge to bring your own container to refill at the store. And that's why several different models are at play between bringing your own container, purchasing a reusable container that you can keep at home. There's also a limitation in terms of the availability of well-known brands. Refill has typically been used for bulk products, commodity products over the past years. And lastly, there's the question of storing food at home. If you're choosing to bring a refillable jar, let's say a glass jar with a rubber seal or a stainless steel jar with a rubber seal on it, you have an airtight container that's going to protect your food from pests and is going to keep it fresh for a long time. If you put it in a paper bag, you won't necessarily have the same performance. And for us, when we're thinking about these systems as a food company, the quality and safety of the food provided is absolutely key. And that's one of the reasons why plastic has been used so extensively in food packaging over the past half a century. 
Yes, it is interesting, isn't it? If you are almost taking away the brand's responsibility around the packaging, then you're pushing onto consumers more of a responsibility, for, as you say, to keep products fresh and safe to consume. Of the various options you've outlined there, what are the ones that you think are most likely to be really, truly scalable? Right now, we're doing what we call test and learn or piloting different types of systems for reuse. One of the partnerships we have is with the company TerraCycle with their Loop packaging system. And Loop provides a service, a partnership with us where we design packaging with them. Consumers can then buy the packaging at the grocery store with a small deposit. Once they're done using the product at home, maybe they're having Nesquik, for example, and after a month, their Nesquik jar is empty. They then bring the jar back to the store, deposit it in one of the Loop reverse vending machines, receive a credit back for their packaging, and then they can buy a new one. Loop then, as a partner, manages the washing of the packaging and bringing it back to us for refilling. So that's one example. Another example that we have been piloting in Chile with Algramo is a bulk dispensing system for Purina pet food. As pet food, particularly dry pet food, can be heavy and come in large bags. So as a convenience to consumers, we developed with them an application where consumers can order their preferred pet food on the phone, prepay in advance, and then when the electric tricycle comes to their house to deliver pet food, they have a refillable bin with an RFID tag. And then when the tag approaches the cart, the cart then automatically recognizes it's which customer and which is their preferred pet food for their dog, dispenses the pet food in the volume they ordered and automatically charges them digitally. So it's actually also a COVID safe delivery method, which is contact free. I guess what it comes down to is making it convenient. Got to make it convenient for the consumer and I guess at a neutral cost as well. They kind of, it can't cost more, but they want to be convenient and cost neutral, I would imagine. One of the great issues around packaging is the unintended consequences of changing packaging. Plastic, as you said, has developed so much because it does its job very well. It's extremely good at performing as a packaging material. So have you conducted any life cycle analysis on using plastics versus other packaging? You hear stories about a switch to paper actually is far more impactful than, than retaining plastic packaging. So what LCAs have you done? So Nestle has an institute for packaging sciences where we have 50 full-time researchers working on the question of packaging and sustainability and materials innovation. At this R&D center, we have a number of researchers doing different types of life cycle analysis on the overall life cycle of the product. And we can look at, for example, how is a package born? Is it produced in a glass factory? Is it from a resin that comes from a petrochemical company? How is the package made? Is it made somewhere else and we're purchasing it already made? Are we blowing, for example, a bottle on site? Then how is it filled at a factory? What is the form of transportation used to deliver the product from the factory to our retail partners? And then how does it get to the consumer at home? So when you look at the life cycle view, it's very specific to a product, a place, and the supply chain associated with it. And that changes country by country. So if you look at just the transportation element, transportation of a product by plane versus boat versus rail versus by truck raises a lot of questions. Is that boat using heavy fuel oil or are they using ammonia? Is the truck running on diesel or has it shifted over to being an electric truck powered by green electricity? or by green hydrogen. Plastic is lightweight and durable and other materials, even paper, for example, is heavier than plastic. Metal and glass are obviously heavier. And so when you start looking at reuse and refill systems or it shifts to other forms of packaging, ensuring that you have both logistics and reverse logistics that will not increase 
the greenhouse gas footprint of that product is really critical for us. And that's something we're studying very closely. We mentioned earlier unintended consequences of switching. So given examples of where the law of unintended consequences has come into play regarding your work around thinking about changing packaging? There are many potential consequences from any change. Part of the complexity of the packaging supply chain is this is about a system. It's a value chain. And that value chain extends from petrochemical companies to packaging companies to manufacturers of food and personal care products, to retailers, to consumers. And then beyond the consumer to the municipal governments and the municipal solid waste districts that are managing either what they call waste or recovered materials, depending on if it's sorted, clean and ready for recycling or if it's not. This is really about systems change. We're looking at how do we do our part? Part of that is about our commitments that 100% of our packaging will either be recyclable or reusable by 2025, that we'll use one third less virgin plastic, and that by 2050, we'll get to net zero emissions, not just for our own scope one emissions, but also for the scope two and three emissions in our supply chain. And so that's leading a transformation of the business because we've made these commitments to ensure that our company's operations and our supply chain will long-term be sustainable for the climate. Okay, so 100% recyclable or reusable by 2025. What are the barriers that you're still to overcome to achieve that? Part of it is about availability of supply. So we're working very closely with our suppliers, particularly in the shift to monomaterial plastics. We could say there are 20 or 40,000 different types of plastic that are available in the world because of different types of additives or colorants or coating treatments that may be added. Each one of those changes moves away from a pure mono material to a material that may or may not be recyclable in your local infrastructure. And so one of the challenges that we've been addressing with the Nestle Institute of Packaging Sciences is how do we look at a shift to monomaterial packaging so that we can ensure that our packaging is going to be easily recyclable and will also be attractive for the recycling streams. This is about driving money into the business of recycling so that packaging becomes ultimately a circular loop. The engagement that's required with consumers will be changing the relationship between consumers and brands. And packaging drives so much of that relationship between the consumer and the brand. How do you see these relationships changing from Nestle's perspective? What are you thinking in terms of how you engage differently with consumers now? I think the expectations of consumers are changing very rapidly. There's a very high consciousness, uh, high sustainability consciousness, high consciousness around the implications of climate change. And consumers are deeply concerned. But you have to remember, consumers are also our staff. We have nearly 300,000 employees and our employees care very deeply about this. Our retail partners care about this. They're consumer-facing as well, and in the conversations that they have with customers, customers are looking for opportunities to change. In the past, the discussion around waste management and the responsibility for properly managing packaging waste has often been put onto the consumers. We don't think it's all about the consumers. We think it's about a system. And depending on the ownership of the packaging, the responsibility usually legally lies with the government or the municipal solid waste district. You can't say it's up to a consumer to create ultimately an entire recycling system. But if we can give our consumers, who that's also you and me in our daily lives when we leave work, can we create choices that enable individuals in their role as a consumer to make a choice that means they know the package will get recycled or reused. 
And that's a good choice to be able to make. Well, it's definitely an exciting time. I mean, there's lots happening. There are lots of spokes in the recycling wheel. It's going to be fascinating to see how it evolves over the coming years. But for now, Jodie Russell, Senior Public Affairs Manager for Packaging Sustainability at Nestle. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. And I'm delighted that Jodie will be among the 40 plus experts that we'll be hearing from at Innovation Forum's Future of Plastics Conference in October. If you're quick, you can still save £150 on conference passes. And don't forget to book before 3rd September for the Climate Action event coming up next month to save $200 on conference passes. Don't forget to go to the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and podcasts. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.